0: hi this is big talk michael glab here last week my co-host alex ashkin began a lively conversation with martial arts maven steve scott he ran a martial arts school for decades here Alex and Steve talked about Steve's life as a United States Marine and the inexorable draw for him into the martial arts world. This week, Alex and Steve talk about, well, let's just say everything you always wanted to know about martial arts but were afraid to ask. The two also talk about some of Steve's local students who have become big names in the national and global competitive martial arts world. But first, a plea from me. The 2021 WFHB Spring Fun Drive is over, but hey, if you missed it, it's never too late. Please go to WFHB.org and click on the big red donate button, where you can safely and securely help us keep the radio fires going here at Firehouse Broadcasting. And now, here are Alex Ashkin and Steve Scott. This is is big talk
1: in martial arts and one of the things that people sort of generally associate with it is doing breaks there's really sparring there's forms which is sort of a demonstration of techniques in a choreographed fashion and then breaking which is whether it's wood or cement blocks being able to with a punch kick or different type of strike be able to break that stuff you kind of became known as one of the guys who did a lot of headbutt breaks
2: right Right. yeah i did and and it doesn't seem to have any have had any discernible (laughs) impact on my intellect at least i hope not Uh, um maybe in 20 years but i used to do a a headbutt break on cinder blocks which people used to call concrete it's not I don't know if you would describe it as concrete, but a, a cinder patio block, something like that. And I'd break things. I'd break wood with my head, but I'd also use my elbows and my fists and my feet, my knees and break boards various ways. But that one caught a lot of attention because I was the only person that really did it. You know, because everybody was a little bit, thought it was a little bit crazy and it probably was unwise to do, given what we know about concussions now. But I don't think I ever really suffered a concussion. I think the the way I did it, kept me fairly safe from such things don't get me wrong i've had plenty of concussions but it's usually been inflicted on me by somebody's foot or, or hand or from throwing me mm-hmm. but i never really i don't think i ever got a concussion from doing a head break now i quit doing those and um because you get old and uh master lee told me he says how old are you and i said i was probably 35 and he said yeah you got to stop i said okay cool but um uh, it's still one of my go-to self-defense techniques if I ever have to protect myself.
1: I, I feel like if uh, you get into confrontation, somebody comes at you head first. You know that that's almost a little bit more intimidating than anything else. It's like this this guy's crazy enough to just attack me with his head. What yeah. else will he do?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah uh, yeah. It was it was just it was kind of like the the crazy Steve Scott of youth. You know, I used to do that. And we used to do breaking martial arts breaks at the school uh, for martial arts tests. And eventually, I just did away with those because I, as cool as it is for demonstrations, I just don't see the validity uh, of, of that as a martial arts skill. Um, yes, do it for demonstrations. But now, when they do martial arts breaking demonstrations for Taekwondo, they use these very thin boards that are perhaps only a quarter of an inch thick. And it's like, there's, I call them crackers, you know, it's like a a cracker board and um, you'll, you'll see them do a demonstration. If the guy misses the break, then the holder will just snap it, you know, to make it look like he broke it when he didn't actually hit it at all. Uh, And they're not a challenge to break. They're very, very, and and I'm going to say it as an old man back in my day, boards were thick you had to to break it what we call a one inch board isn't actually a one inch board but we'd break fairly good sized planks and and um those were it was fun it was a lot a lot of fun but i just couldn't see having kids do it it was took up a lot of time and and when you're running a test for children and stuff parents want to get home you know it's it's their friday night and their kids are tired so we eventually just did away with breaking
1: yeah, I sorry. would
2: do it for a demonstration in a heartbeat. Still today, I just wouldn't break with my head.
1: Taking things back a little bit, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the history of martial arts because as somebody who's an enthusiast, there's a lot that people aren't aware of. As a child of the 60s, you were exposed to Bruce Lee and really his breakout role in the Green Hornet as Cato. It wasn't really until he kind of got his big break and I, really I think the probably the biggest first real like Bruce Lee feature in my opinion was the big boss. Obviously there's great movies like Enter the Dragon and Way of the Dragon but those came a little bit later. So that really sort of just gave people the opportunity to be exposed to Kung Fu for the first time. And not just Kung Fu but as you mentioned Jeet Kune Do which is Bruce Lee's own specialized art form, as well as sort of Wing Chun, which was another martial arts form that Bruce Lee practiced. And for those who are less aware, Wing Chun is sort of a Southern Chinese Cantonese style boxing form almost. If you've ever seen people practicing on a three pronged uh, wooden training dummy. A lot of times, you will see people practicing Wing Chun on those. But that stuff, and sort of the Shotokan Karates, the Taekwondos, these sort of martial arts, were a lot different from the sort of more popular stuff today. Uh, a lot of times, we're seeing stuff like Muay Thai, Brazilian Jitsu, or sometimes I believe called small circle Jujitsu.
2: Uh, no, actually oh. that's a separate, yeah, that's a separate system. Small circle jujitsu is a, a system founded uh, by grandmaster Wally J and it's distinctly different in many oh. ways from Brazilian Jitsu. They have common threads and common uh, ancestors, but yeah, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not small circle jujitsu. That's a uh, two separate arts. One, one found by Wally J in uh, Alameda, California. And I've mm-hmm. studied with Wally, the late Wally J. And then, um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which was, uh, came out of Brazil, and it's a modification of a Jiu Jitsu form. And mm-hmm. so you'll see Wally Jay, some of his stuff. And you, you, uh, For instance, he did regular Judo. He, yeah. he did Judo and Jiu Jitsu and stuff that some of the elements that he knew and, and taught out of his school that he didn't teach in his seminars were familiar in some ways to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is its big thing. Mm-hmm
1: this is the stuff for me uh as somebody who's always been a fan of martial arts and as somebody who practiced martial arts throughout his teen years i i had a huge appreciation for it but a lot of these schools and different disciplines had decades if not centuries and in some cases millennia of history behind them
2: getting back to bruce lee bruce lee had a dynamic effect on the world martial arts community. You mentioned, uh, for instance, The Big Boss as being one of his breakout films. My friends and I used to go and watch Bruce Lee's movies in Chinatown in Honolulu, and we appreciated him. He was great, he was different, he was dynamic. He had a screen charisma that Mm -hmm. nobody else could compare to. And, And we used to watch Run Run Shaw films too, but Bruce Lee was, pretty impressive. And he died while I was in Honolulu, uh, 1973. And End of the Dragon was just coming out and Return of the Dragon was in the can. And it, you mentioned it as Way of the Dragon It was released originally here as Return of the Dragon. And that was with Chuck Norris, introduced Chuck Norris to the, to the screen community. It exploded after that. I mean, he had more of an effect actually on the world martial arts scene after his death mm-hmm. because of those layer two movies. Then he did while he was alive, although it's, he was starting to have an impact, a, a rising tide fills, raises all boats. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the martial arts community benefited from that. So if you had a martial arts school down the block mm-hmm. that taught karate, you know, you wanted to go do martial arts no matter what it was, you know, if yeah. you couldn't find a Kung Fu school and you had some disreputable instructors, you know, start putting Kung Fu up on their, there's there's signs because everybody wanted to do Kung Fu like Bruce Lee, but it had an amazing impact. And I was privileged to be able to see that change. Martial arts school started exploding all throughout the United States. And you see things like that happen throughout the evolution of the martial arts over the last, I'm going to say it 50 years that I witnessed. Cause I'm an old man and it's, it was tremendous. Uh, he got the ball rolling. And even to this day, you see guys like Jackie Chan and Jet Li and, you know, all these other guys mm-hmm. will sit there and pay tribute to Bruce Lee as being phenomenal. Donnie Yen, yeah. um, the martial arts movie star, plays Ip Man. And Ip Man mm-hmm. uh, was Bruce Lee's instructor. So Donnie Yen will pay great tribute to Bruce Lee. And it's, it's wonderful to see this. You know, you see boxers mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about Bruce Lee with reverence. Because he was a phenomenal martial artist. He was a phenomenal screen presence. And he got everybody jazzed up on it Taekwondo people, karate people, kung fu people. And that led to a fertile ground for some of the other martial arts development we saw in years later. In the 1990s, for instance, we had the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Mm -hmm. And the Ultimate Fighting Championship was pitting one martial art against another. And boy, golly, were me and my black belts and students there to watch that the first night they had that. We Mm -hmm. all tuned in. And the ultimate fighting championship in those early days wasn't that good, but we still tuned in mm-hmm. uh, to watch the fights in the octagon. And that, that theater, mm-hmm. that combat arena led to another massive explosion in the martial arts. That arena led to an evolutionary development of the martial arts that was explosive and profound Mm -hmm. because you started seeing, for instance, grappling, wrestling, getting put into the mix. And then it went through different phases where you'd have jiu-jitsu would reign supreme, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we talked about it earlier, a ground fighting game. And then people learned how to deal with the ground fighting game. Wrestlers came in and started dealing with the Brazilian jiu-jitsu ground fighting game and actually incorporating it into their own technique and boxers then started incorporating it into their own technique. And people started, lit, you know, mixing the martial arts to where today, uh, the fight in the, the octagon is a blend of styles, stand up punching, kicking, grappling on the ground, Brazilian jiu-jitsu wrestling. It's phenomenal. The effect that that had on the martial arts community. Mm -hmm. When they brought the Ultimate Fighting Championship to the United States, there was a fertile ground for that arena to be presented because of the wide martial arts experience of so many people in the United States, thanks to Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. So Bruce Lee's explosion of the 70s, the popularity of martial arts in the 70s led to the Uh, ultimate fighting championship in the 90s and boy golly it's taken off since then
1: even then if for those who are interested there's a deep history behind the ufc and the mixed martial arts community one it went through a bit of a legal trouble initially in the united states because it was actually illegal initially i believe it was Perhaps Senator John McCain, and I, yes. please don't quote me on this. Yeah, he likened it was. The, to human cockfighting or like dogfighting uh, or akin to that and really pushed against it initially.
2: And um, I, w- I had problems with John McCain pushing against it initially, but then later on I, I saw his point. Mm-hmm. They started putting in safety regulations to ensure the safety of the fighters, and then later on he, he's credited with saying, yeah, they kind of got their act together. And so it became a much safer sport. It, you know, you just don't have the ring deaths that you had in boxing and, um, from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Although I think in some respect, boxing has got safer now. They've cracked down on a lot of the safety in boxing, I, I think, because of the, the concussive effects of, of punching to the head. But martial arts, uh, mixed martial arts is far safer today uh, than it was in those early days of the 90s. And that's a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing. You have, uh, it is bloody as it can get in the ring. You know, you'll see people step in and stop a fight if they think for, for a moment that a person's been concussed. You know, they don't want him to sustain any further head trauma. And that's fantastic.
1: It's just fascinating because as you were sort of saying with your tours throughout Southeast and Northeast Asia, you know, you got to see, you know, folks, brawling in a bar for entertainment and that in many ways was sort of these uh birthplaces of a lot of these combat sports now obviously depending on where you go you might actually see an octagon set up in a bar these days uh you know there are plenty of local small like small scale martial arts in uh mixed or ufc mma uh circuits but That all really, I believe, started particularly in Japan with the Pride Fighting Championship. Uh, I think that was sort of what a lot of people pointed to as the true precursor of a lot of this stuff, particularly some of the early or the later fighters from the Pride Fighting Championship went on to become early UFC fighters. I'm actually going to stop myself before I've pronounce and or misremember people's names because I'm having my own version of a senior moment, uh, qu- quarter <laughs> seat, half senior moment, <laughs> um, but the absolutely phenomenal demonstrations of skill, technique, endurance, toughness, and in some cases, violence. But it, some of the interesting things, too, about pride fighting was there were no weight categories
2: the pride competitions were very good but i think you know i i'm not i'm not sure about this but i don't think they were marketed too heavily in the united states and the ufc really got a lot of attention and it took off and then look at look at it today i mean it's just it's amazing what it is today um they've got usc fights all over mixed martial arts octagon fights all over the world now yeah i saw one the other day on popped up on Facebook and it like was in, I want to say it was in Indonesia. The martial arts responds to something that the scientists who are listening to this may be familiar with. It's something called selection pressure. Mm-hmm. When you get two combatants in a ring actually going at it like they do in mixed martial arts, now something's going to come out on top. And if it doesn't work in the octagon, it's going to rapidly disappear. Occasionally you'll see that little outlier technique that somebody can do where they, they do something phenomenal that nobody else can really do or ever replicate. But as a general rule, that selection pressure lets the best techniques rise to the top and then the others get discarded. And it kind of like goes with what Bruce Lee used to say, and it wasn't original to Bruce Lee, but he'd say, take what you can use and leave the rest. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an evolution of martial arts, a change that takes place. And it's been phenomenal in the last uh, 30 years to see that evolution take place. And I honestly think the internet has a lot to do with that evolution, the democratization of martial arts on YouTube and TikTok mm-hmm. and Instagram. You can see all sorts of people training, teaching things. It's, it's leading to a, a, a rapid increase in the development of martial arts. And it's almost it's breathtaking. It really is. And again, I'm looking at it as an old guy that remembers the good old days. You know, I thought the martial artists of my youth were really phenomenal and they were, they were, but nowadays I look online and I'm seeing, you know, women who are just, you know, rocking it, uh, doing competitions and the like. And it's, it's, it's fantastic to, to see the diversity of the martial arts that are out there, the synthesis of the martial arts that are out there. It's it's a wonderful thing to see in my old age. It really is.
1: You've had the opportunity to serve as a mentor to many young martial artists, several of which actually ended up becoming successful in the octagon, whether it's at the amateur or even the professional level. Notably, Julie Fireball Kedzie, one of the pioneers of female mixed martial arts was a longtime student of yours of your Taekwondo program. Additionally, Daniel Guevara, who's a grappler and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighter uh, now in, I believe, Southwestern Texas, also a longtime student of yours. So what do you think drives people to become a combat athlete, and do you think that there's a bit of either a mentality difference or like a training difference between somebody who's sort of pursuing a more traditional martial art, whether it's Kung Fu, TKD, Hapkido, what have you, versus somebody who does kind of want to get into the ring and scrap around a little bit?
2: That's a good question. I think personality has a lot to do with that. Some people are drawn more to the non-combat elements of the martial arts, such as kata forms. Uh, You see some phenomenal women martial artists, for instance, talking about women who, uh, for instance, the 2012 Japanese team at the world karate championships. You can see that on YouTube. These three women do an organized routine where they do a kata and then they do a, a choreographed sparring match. Where they fight each other with the techniques from the form. It's phenomenal to watch. I mean, I show it to my students. The kids are just aghast. <laughs> their, their little mouths drop open when they look at it. It's, it's amazing. But these women are very intense, yet they are not mixed martial artists. What drives a woman like Julie in the mixed martial arts? Uh, I think for her, her nickname Fireball. She's been that since I first met her. I first met her when she was 12. She came to our school, started training that boy, golly. I, when I heard the phrase fireball kids, it's like, yeah, no, that's Julie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was her taekwondo instructor. I didn't teach her mixed martial arts. She started training in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and started doing some combat submission wrestling, coming to our seminars with Eric Paulson when he'd come into town and was working over at the IU Brazilian Jiu Jitsu club and then got under James Klingerman up in Indianapolis. And, Julie got a fight down at Evansville and that opened the doors for her. And she just started carving out a career, taking fights when she could get them. And it was hard because she couldn't find anybody her size to fight. She sometimes had to fight women who are way bigger than her. I mean, that was very often the case. And she's not, she's five, four, her fighting weight, I think is around one thirty and stuff. And I, saw her go up against women who probably well over five, four, five, seven, five, eight, Who you know, on a, on a lean day might weigh 148. And uh, it was tough for her to to do that. So it takes a, a certain passion and Julie's got plenty of that. And as far as Danielle, Danielle was consistent in her training. She loved Taekwondo. She was an, both both women were just exemplary teachers you know they teach for me they teach taekwondo to kids and were just awesome with the children you know both danielle and julie worked uh in our adaptive program over to Y, teaching handicapped kids they danielle went on to texas uh and started teaching taekwondo down there and then eventually got into a brazilian jiu-jitsu school which you know i would encourage her to do because i've always encouraged cross-training found a wonderful brazilian jiu-jitsu school down there in texas it was like a, a family to her, just like we were like a family to her. So she found a home away from home down there. And that kind of nurtured her and took her in that direction. Julie ended up going to her own course and just finding instructors and training with people and stuff because she wanted to fight. Women's fighting, women's mixed martial arts was just starting to become a thing. You know. And then she got a fight with a woman uh, that was placed on Showtime and she got the first televised mixed martial arts fight of two women throwing hands at each other and kicking each other and stuff. They both got a standing ovation. And that kind of was a breakthrough moment for, for Julie. Uh, she ended up with Greg Jackson down in New Mexico. And Greg Jackson is a noted coach in mixed martial arts. She went down to train with Greg and ended up in the Ultimate Fighting Championship and before she got in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, she had this just phenomenal fight with a, a woman named Misha Tate. Uh, and they were pounding each other. And Julie lost that fight, but it was epic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched that today and I'm still, I am still stand up and start cheering for her. Yeah, these are, these are some pretty remarkable women. And that's, they, they make me very proud that they, they trained at my school. We've, we've turned out a lot of women black belts out of our school and and younger girls who uh, have just been phenomenal. And I've always thought Monroe County Martial Arts was a school where, uh, you know, women could participate in the martial arts and show their mettle. I had an instructor years ago who, and I tell this story often, who one time I was talking about uh, this one female student, how... You know, I was going to try to work with her on her jump kicks because they just weren't coming around. And he said to me, and this was in the 80s, he said to me what I thought was a remarkably bigoted thing. It it really shocked me. He said, women can't jump. Hmm. And I took umbrage to that like you wouldn't believe. Because first off, he was placing limits on me as an instructor. It's like, you can't teach women how to jump. It's like, I thought I could. And also, too, there was this other little nagging thing in the back of my head. It's like, you know, that's an insult to women. Well, guess what? I never did prove him wrong. The women in my school proved him wrong.
1: Yeah.
2: I taught them how to do the jump kicks, but they were the ones that did the work. And Julie got pretty good at them. My wife, Linda, was back in the day when she was young. There's a video out there somewhere. It's probably very old and brown now, but Linda... Could do a, a flying sidekick over like two people who were crouched down and break a board and her hips are vertical it was just amazing. So the women in Monroe County martial arts proved this guy wrong, proved this instructor wrong. I just have always taken inspiration from the accomplishments of the girls and the uh, women at Monroe County martial arts. And you know, the women that came out of Monroe County martial arts, like Julie and Danielle, they're awesome.
1: And I, I can tell just from the smile on your face, you know, how much pride you take in those students. And obviously there's plenty of others who folks like oh, Lee, yeah. Jonah Schrode, uh, so many others who've gone on to carry a great name with the program. Yeah,
2: yeah. they continue they continue uh, teaching martial arts. And uh, Jonah Schroed, who's a local comedian and stuff, trained under me, started training under me at the age of nine. Uh, and he's just a phenomenal young man. And we consider him a second son. And Rob Lee, too, same thing. Rob Lee is still to this day doing martial arts, a guy who, I should say, one of the kids who came and started training with us uh, ended up literally being our son, Patrick, Mm -hmm. uh, who you know, Patrick Jesse. Uh, We took him in because he needed a home when he was 15. And uh, he got a black belt with us and ended up uh, becoming part of our family. So, yeah, there's been a lot of young men and women who have come out of our school that are, you know, very close to us. And I had an instructor one time tell me, he says, you do not socialize with your students. So you don't get close with your students. It's unprofessional. I don't know how many people have told me that, you know, you don't socialize with your students. Don't get close to your students. Keep that professional distance from your students. Like, -uh. no, not going to do it. Not going to do it. And we didn't do it. We became very close to a lot of our students and they're like family to us.
1: Steve Scott, thank you so much for this time on Big Talk. And to all of our viewers, I hope you have a great evening.